Welcome to episode 153. Today, Margaret Park joins us to talk about how biases alter the learning expectations for marginalized students, especially students who are learning to acquire English. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Every cloud has. Sometimes when I send out my resume, I wonder if the reviewer stops looking at my resume after seeing my photo and reading my name. That's clearly Vietnamese. Is my resume tossed out because the employer unconsciously prefers white educators in their language acquisition department? This is the reality of biases. They affect marginalized people like me, but also like your students. They affect people of color disproportionately. Imagine if we transfer unexamined biases to our classrooms and apply them to our colleagues, our students, and their families. Let's say that a student is experiencing biases from a teacher, but that student has seven more teachers. Now imagine if all of them have all these biases against this student. In this thought-provoking podcast, diversity, equity, and inclusion expert Margaret Park joins us to talk about what implicit bias is, what forms they take, and what we can do to examine our own. Now, on to today's podcast. I'm always excited to have international school colleagues on the podcast, and today we have a very special guest, Margaret Park from formerly from uh, So Foreign School here to talk. And I attended one of her workshops and I was like, oh my goodness, we need to spread your message to every teacher in the world, not just international school teachers, but teachers in North America as well. So uh, Ms. Park, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Tan, for having me. Um, I really appreciate you creating this space and it's such an honor to be on this podcast and I'm very excited to just share our learnings together today. Can you please tell us your current um, work context and the work context you just came from? Sure. So um, I've been in education my entire life. A big shout out to all the educators out there. Um, and uh, recently, um, I was the assistant principal at Seoul Foreign School in South Korea. I was there for 12 years um, and I just ended my time. Um, and I'm currently a DEI consultant. So I am a full time consultant. And what I do is I support organizations and leadership teams to think through an equity and justice lens so that all community members can thrive just as they are. So just for people who don't know, when people hear the word so foreign school, it's one of the most prestigious schools in Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a has a long history. And so the, the fact that you landed um, a role and was given the role as VP as a Korean American, it's quite um, a shock 
but also a affirmation of your qualities and your gifts that you bring to the school. Oh, thank you so much for saying that, Tan. Actually, when I um, went for this position, I wasn't very confident that I would have gotten it because when I looked at the history of people who were in principal positions, I didn't see that many that looked like me. Um, actually, um, there is a story. Uh, before I became an assistant principal, I was a school counselor. And um, we had this, um, this play that we did. We were raising money. Um, I got cast as the lead. Uh, I'm not an actress, so it was very scary. But I was acting and um, you know that I remember the, uh, the role was like a Disney princess. And so I went in and I was a Korean princess. And, um, you know, after the show, there was a line of Korean students. And um, I was wondering why, like I wasn't used to like, oh, they want my photograph, how lovely. But when they came up, their parents were sharing with me and them, we've never seen a Korean princess before. This is huge. And so, um, you know, they took photos. It was just so lovely. But I just remember like, wow, representation matters. Like these young girls have not seen themselves represented in media. and they come to the school and they see it. And it was just so, um, I don't know, it was very, um, it just left such a mark in my heart. Even now I get the chills talking about it. And that actually made me think really deeply about what about our school settings? Do our Does our leadership, do our teachers represent our students? And I started thinking about that. And I looked at the leadership and I'm like, I, I don't think that's the case. And so for me, um, it was an impetus for me. Like, I, I, I think I need to be in leadership um, just for the fact to make sure that every, person feel seen and heard. And so that was a, a big motivator for me. And so it is such an honor. It was an honor to serve at Seoul Foreign School. It's an honor to be in that position. And I'm hoping that we can have more leadership represented represented of all students and colleagues. You know, our we need it too as adults. And so um, thank you for, uh, yeah, give, again, giving me the space to share my story. I still remember when um, talking about representation, how important it is, uh, I remember mean, when Rich Crazy Asians came out, I was shocked yes. that the reception that it got. I was like, oh, it's just going to be a few Asians going to be watching it. But it was so well received. And because of that reception, it was so positive. I felt more affirmed as an Asian American. Like, yes, we. And then when Shang-Chi came out, we're like, mm -hmm. yes, like a main character, not just a sidekick. And like, or like with rich crazy Asians, it's like the whole cast was Asian. And it's, if I, as an adult, feel that when I see that in media, how do our mm -hmm. kids feel when they see uh, people who look like them from their cultures? Absolutely, representation matters. We can't say that enough. We can't stress that enough. I actually saw on Twitter, someone said in Spanish, it was, um, representation doesn't kill, homophobia does. And they had a they had a picture of a person who was killed because of homophobia. And it's like, we can we can say that for anything. We can say um, representation doesn't kill, Islamophobia does, racism does, homophobia does, right? And so mm -hmm. that's why representation is so important. When I was at your workshop, you started it with a visualization activity. Can you do that activity for with us? Absolutely. Okay, so okay, so I'm gonna ask the audience members to just take a moment, if your eyes or not, but I'm going to take you through a visualization activity. Okay, so you have high spirits because you've just received an annual physical exam, and your doctor has told you you are healthy. So that's amazing. You were a little bit worried because you weren't feeling so well. As you walk out of your doctor's office on your way back to school for a meeting, you stop to a cafe. You grab your usual cafe latte with almond milk. 
And when you're getting coffee, you witness this heartwarming engagement by a couple in the cafe. And you find it very meaningful because you find out that this couple had their first date at this this cafe. So how meaningful is that? You get to witness a part of history. And now you walk back to your school where you had this faculty meeting and now you're in really high spirits um, and your head of school is providing an update on how your school has been amazing through the pandemic. And guess what? You get a whole week off because you've been doing an incredible job. Now, clearly that's fiction because we wouldn't get a week off. So now I'm gonna ask us to now take a step back and I'm gonna ask you a few questions and just answer um, just honestly, the first uh, answer that comes to your mind. So in your visualization, was your doctor a black woman? Were the couple in the cafe two men? Was your head of school an Asian woman that looked like me? Okay. And so um, Tan, I do this visualization activity before the, our workshop, the workshop that you attended. Um, it, and the purpose is, is it's, not to, um, it's not to make people feel bad if they answer no, that's actually normal. Um, most people will answer no to all of the questions or maybe most of them. And it, it's to show that our brain creates images of what is familiar. So um, our experiences and um, our interactions with the people in our lives, they actually create um, um, images and memories and how we're gonna associate um, th the things in our lives. So for example, for me, when I did this visualization activity, even though I, I made it up, even when I did it after it, I, I still answered no. Like my doctor was not a black woman. It was actually an Asian man because growing up, I went to a lot of doctors who were Asian men, Dr. Park. <laughs> and it's funny when I say that among Koreans, oh, my doctor is Dr. Park too. Um, and so, you know, and also for, for the couple in the cafe, I grew up, um, I did not see many um, same-sex couples. And so for me, they were heterosexual couples. Um, and so, you know, and also head of school, it's always a white man for me. And so even in my visualization, um, it, I've answered no. And that goes to show that our experiences shape how we will view things and that, and that creates powerful uh, images and it also creates biases that we're not aware of. Yeah, I remember doing that visualization and I would say no to a lot of them as well. I did mm -hmm. see the couple as gay couple because I'm gay and I'm like, oh, mm -hmm. great. Uh, but when you debriefed and I was like, oh my goodness, I didn't think of my head of school as as a woman, but although I've had two head of schools, right? I'm like, what does that mean, Tan? Like you've had two head of head of schools, but your first visualization was two white men. Like why mm -hmm. why is that? And so, mm -hmm. um, where do you think that comes from? Yeah, I, I think again, like when we, like, I think you illustrated it. Like in your visualization, you actually did see two gay men because you know, you, you're know you surrounded by that. Um, and I didn't because I didn't grow up surrounded by that. So, you know, it, it really goes to show that, you know, our interactions with others, like who we surround ourselves with, our experiences matter. They're very powerful. They will shape how we think about things. Um, and, you know, I think um, this reminds me of a, a conversation I had with a high school student. So she um, never saw anyone like herself um, you know, be a doctor. She really wanted to be a doctor. And um, she was telling me like, oh, you know, this is what I want to be, but this is where I'm going. And, you know, I'm a counselor. So, you know, I was just kind of like, you know, just listening. But what we realized is that she wouldn't even go for the, to be a doctor. She didn't even think to, to go that far because she never saw someone um, who looked like her. And that to me was so 
crazy in so many ways because she's very brilliant. She can do it. But just because she didn't have those experiences, she didn't think that um, she could she could be a really good doctor. She's like, I'm probably not going to do well. Um, that changed the church. It could have changed the trajectory of her life. Right. Her experiences matter. Right. And it, she didn't have people telling her you can do it. Uh, and she didn't see people telling her to see people who look like her doing this this role in, in her sphere of influence. So what it took was corrective strategies, getting her to think differently so she could do it. But also in like here, I'm going to introduce you to doctors who look like you. They exist. You just happen to be in, 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 a, in, a, in an environment where it doesn't exist, unfortunately. Um, and if it doesn't exist, how can we some people do need to be like trailblazers and pioneers. How can we support you, right? And so again, it just goes to show our experiences matter and we are going to um, develop like unconscious biases and unconscious associations without us knowing. That's why it just goes to show we need uh, to make sure we're self-reflecting. We need community members to help us um, it, because it can be um, pretty life-changing. Um, I'm just, I highlight her story because if she hadn't had um, examples after the fact, then she probably would have never pursued the, the path that she's supposed to be, right? And that's really sad. That changes your whole life. And so, you know, it's not something to take lightly. And this is why I'm doing these trainings. And this is why we're doing this podcast. Right. It, thank you for sharing her story because it really shows that with one example of representation, how it can really change your your trajectory, your path. I think to me, representation is either a, two things, it, a metaphor, it's a mirror so you can see yourself, but it's mm -hmm. also seeds. Like you're planting seeds of belief. Like you, like the fact that um, you were the Asian Korean princess in the show, like sowed a seed of belief in those kids, in the, that, those, that row of kids who were lining up to, to say hi to you and take pictures of you, that you sowed a seed and belief in them to say like, oh, you can be a princess, you are valuable, or you can be the lead. And um, have you seen um, Miss Saigon by any chance? It was um, a show, um, it, it's on Broadway. So it just got me thinking about uh, when I was younger, I, I I wanted to be on Broadway. Like I'm very theatrical and dramatic. And, um, you know, I love singing and music. And I never thought that I could ever be on stage um, until I saw, um, Leah Salonga, she, she was a Princess Jasmine in Aladdin, but um, she's Filipino woman, but she was the lead of the show. Um, and I, I remember seeing her, um, you know, uh, on the CD and I listened to her and it was the first time I actually remember the moment I was in high school. It was the first time I ever saw anyone like that on Broadway because I, I, I grew up going to music, like seeing live theater. And it was so powerful for me. It was so emotional. And um, that was the first time I was like, you know what? I can do this. And I think that matters because it changed. Of course, I'm not on Broadway, you know, but that changed the way that I think about myself, um, not just as like a singer and a, and a musician, but also just, just as a person. I'm like, I can do this. And it just illustrates what you say. It's just so powerful. And it, it, it it, it, you know, like as we're talking, I'm thinking there's there are groups of people who never have to think about this because if you're in the majority, everything is centered around you. So you don't have to worry or not worry, but you don't have to think about, oh, wow, like you're not going to have that moment of reckoning, right? Like, oh my goodness, I'm represented. Because if you're represented all the time, you just take it for granted and you don't have to think about experiences of others, which is why it's so important that we're having this talk because I do feel like if you're in the majority, it is important to understand 
what those who are not in the majority are going through because you have the power and privilege to make change. It is much easier for someone who has privilege and power to make change. Um, and so again, thank you for this podcast because I, I really hope that listeners will kind of reflect and, and see what we all can do as a community to support each other, to make this place like just for everybody. Right, right. In your example of Broadway, when you were looking at Miss Saigon, like she, you saw yourself, there was the mirror, and then she planted a seed in exactly. you so that years later you could be a Korean princess. Exactly. Thank you, Tam. That was beautifully connected. <laughs> Can you, um, we've been talking about implicit bias. Uh, would you define that for us? Sure. So implicit, implicit biases, um, they're attitudes and stereotypes we hold towards people and they're outside our consciousness. So they're influenced um, by, by things we already have, again, by our experiences, our interactions with others, right? Um, and so um, the, this it actually influences how we act um, more than our values. Um, and I, I think that for me, um, when I was reading the research on this, that was so powerful for me personally, because I think we all have values that we wanna live by, right? Um, and, and we center our beliefs of how we act around those values. But when I was thinking about, oh my goodness, my biases can actually put, predict how I behave more than my values. Like that was just mind blowing to me. I'm, and I remember, just, just making a commitment. I need to make sure that I do everything I can to make sure I'm aware of my own biases so I don't create unintentional harm. Would you give an example of that? Not from your own, if you don't want to, but an example of like, okay, your beliefs actually define your values or trump your values, right? Yeah. So let's, let's say, okay. Um, let's say kindness is a value. Okay. Like you know, I, I would like to think many of us want to be kind to others. Um, if you have weight bias, all right? So weight bias is um, you have a prejudice against people who are overweight or maybe underweight. Um, so if, if, if you have weight bias, you're going to tend to not to treat people who are maybe heavier differently, or you'll think that they're lazy, or you'll think that um, they're not competent. And so it will actually... Um, change your interactions with them. And that's actually not kind, um, but you're not, you're not, you don't realize you're doing that. Um, and so at, at the, um, at the training that I did, I highlighted Dr. Urban Yalom because he's one of my uh, favorite psych psych psychologists. Um, he was a professor at Stanford and he writes about this. He is someone who actually, you know, helps others, you know, get, get through their biases. And he writes about, he had a patient who was overweight and they went through months of therapy and he you know he's he's like a a, a big big shot in the, in the therapy field and she actually called him out um at the end of the six six seven months she said you've never looked at me once during our sessions she says um i know for a fact that you shake people's hands you get you know at the end of sessions because um, she knew other patients of his and he was just devastated because she was his mirror she she basically said you have a weight bias and you've treated me differently and he had no idea and he he, he actually writes about it he writes about how he had to uh, go through that process but again um that that goes to show i believe he's someone who who wanted to treat all his patients fairly that was his uh, value and he wanted to be kind, but his weight bias showed, um, and that could have that caused a lot of harm to his patient, who he's getting paid for to to bring healing and hope. And so um, that's an example of how your biases can trump your values. Let's uh, transfer that concept over to schools. Like why why are implicit biases so important for teachers to know about and to think about? 
Absolutely. So, you know, I, I mentioned about unintentional harm. I like to believe that as educators, we want to help all our students. We want our students to thrive. But because of our biases at times, it can create unintentional harm to our students. And schools are supposed to be places where we we create environments where students can thrive just as they are. But when we have biases, they cannot. And, you know, so for example, you know, I'll go back to that high school student I was talking to, uh, uh, you know, she also shared that a teacher just made one little comment. She was trying to apply for med school, just said, hey, do you want to consider something else? Um, again, we can unpack that, but the impact of that one statement was, oh my goodness, this crushed my dreams. You know, she's in tears and she's like, maybe, maybe I'm not good enough. And everything she internalized came out again from that teacher, I, I, I don't know what the intention was. I don't know what that teacher meant, but the fact is, is that th this created harm for this student. And had that student not um, provide, sought help elsewhere, probably wouldn't have applied to med school, would not be a doctor. Ch again, changes the trajectory of their life. And so it's so important that as educators, we are aware of our biases, so they don't go into the classroom. Um, you know, I read it all the time, you know, especially with when there's um, black students and white students, um, there's ton of research showing the expectations for black students are lower. They're actually expected to misbehave more, not perform more. And if you're already thinking that without even knowing, what does that mean? What kind of questions will you ask the students? What kind of expectations will you set? How will you teach? How will you interact? They all matter. Again, they're everyday slights, they matter. So they all, um, they're collective. And can you imagine if it's not just one teacher, it's all your teachers, right? And so what kind of environment is that setting up for our students? And so it is so important that we, we address our implicit bias, engage in corrective strategies. Well, you're on the podcast and you're speaking to a group of teachers who are teaching uh, multilingual learners. And so I often, I often spot biases by the way teachers describe their students. They often will say like, okay, I'll be vulnerable. I used to call and I define my students by what they could not do. Oh, they can't speak English. Oh, they don't, they can't read that article. You can't expect them to write that, right? And so you could see that my biases were like, oh, just because they're, they weren't born in an English speaking country, they're not gonna be as successful. Until I changed my mindset to say like, wait, what can they do? And then that changed my beliefs after that. No, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for being vulnerable because I think the, the audience needs to hear that because we, we all have biases. That's the thing. None of us, you know, none of us are free from them and it's all about continual learning. And so I think, like you said, we have to, we have to change our mindset and it, it, it's, it's doable. Um, and I think a lot of times with, with teachers, educators that I've talked to, they are very unaware. And, you know, when there's a power dynamic in the classroom, it's very rare that a student is going to tell us, give us that feedback, right? I mean, I think in an ideal world, they would. And of course, we have those who are very happy to give us feedback all the time. Um, but, you know, in general, I don't think a student's going to come to us and say, hey, actually, you had, that was very, that, that, that was very harmful to me. And this is why, right? We don't have that feedback. Back. So as an educator, how do we get that feedback? How do we gauge, like, how do we know, right? And that's something I think as educators, we have to think about. Um, but also once we are aware, are we engaging in those corrective strategies? And I think that's important. But for me, that takes community. I can't do it on my own. That's why I need, like, we need to have these discussions. Um, and so again, um, I think, with, with, you know, when it comes to students, like we, 
as educators, it is our responsibility to make sure they're thriving just as they are. So we have to be very intentional. This take, this work takes intentionality. And it's actually, as, as you know, it's not easy. It can be very painful. We have to do our own internal work. And, and you know, when I was doing this work of uncovering my own biases, it let me tell you, I was not like, I was not super happy about it at first. But, you know, I actually, like you said, changed my mindset. I started receiving feedback as a gift. And now that I think, wow, this is a gift of learning. It really is like, how awesome is it that I'm now aware of my biases and I can make change in the beginning. I, you know, I was a little bit arrogant. I was like, oh my goodness, I would get very defensive, but I've actually learned to switch my brain. Anytime I get defensive, I immediately try to switch it into, let me reframe this as a gift. And then it's positive And it, it's really done wonders for me. It's a very little trick, but it's worked so well. So it is a gift when we call each other in and we learn. So speaking uh, about feedback, how do we get feedback from students? The, the way that I do that is mm -hmm. I, I do, uh, at the end of every unit, I have my students do an anonymous survey mm -hmm. and then students write. And one of the questions um, that I always write is, um, how comfortable did Mr. Tan make you feel? Or how, how comfortable was the environment for you? And then uh, students rated it from like uh, very uncomfortable, very comfortable, and they, and they, they click on a, on a number. And then on the bottom, I say, can you please explain uh, the question above? And one student said, uh, you're biased towards the boys. And I was like, I had to like stop. And I had to think like, am I really? And I, I would have to say that I am. Cause like the boys are really participatory. Um, and I had to think what, what, what can I do to change that? Right? And so now here are the two things that I do very intentionally. One is that I do a daily journal, a weekly journal with kids, bi-weekly journal. So I'm writing mm -hmm. to every single student um, a, a response back and forth. So they'll write to me one day and then I spend time responding to them. And in two weeks, they'll see, uh, they'll, they'll back, go back and respond back and forth. So now that I'm talking to every single student and not just the boys. And the second thing I do is when I show model examples, I used to show mostly just boys work. And I, cause I had to like analyze, like, where is this coming from? I could see where students are saying this. And so now that I, I use a pairing of, of as much as possible boys and girls or people who identify as boys and girls. And so, uh, that's how I get survey. That's how you get feedback. Feedback helps you reveal your biases. And then now it's your job to swallow and say like, okay, what can I do? Oh my goodness. Thank you for sharing that. I, wow. Um, that's really powerful. And I think one thing that you're doing is you're also showing the students that it is safe for them to be brave to give feedback because I've actually talked to educators and like when I'm they say the same thing oh we have this anonymous feedback but then in, in reality when the feedback comes the students get scared because it's not received so well but you're like you've created a space where you're like yep yeah you can you can tell me and I'm going to make changes I'm going to show you I think that's the key because uh, you can have feedback but if students don't have the evidence that their teacher is going to embrace it and be like, hey, we're learning together. This is great. And these, this is how I made the changes, which is what you illustrated. I don't think it's very effective. And so thank you for illustrating what you know feedback should look like. Um, I think that's amazing. Your students are really blessed to have you. <laughs> it's amazing. I'm so blessed to have them. They, uh, yeah. They're the best part of my day. Oh man, I, I feel like um we could probably make a book of all the feedback we received. <laughs> it's yeah, a lot. Um no, but thank you for sharing that. Would you give us a list of implicit biases and talk about them, each of them? 
Sure, sure. Um, I could, there's so many. So um, just, just I'll name some of the few that um, are most common. And so one of them is like affinity bias, and it, it's it's what it is. So basically, it's our tendency to gravitate towards people similar to ourselves. So if you're talking about, let's say you're a teacher. Um, if you have a student that looks like you, you may have an affinity towards them naturally. Like, oh, like I, I know I have that. I had to work through that because I, I grew up in spaces where I was the only Asian. And so, you know, as a teacher, when I was when I had one Asian kid, I was like, oh, my goodness, I'm going to cherish this child and I want to make sure this child's taken care of. But as an educator, we have to do that for all our students. And so that that's an example. And then let's go to hiring. So affinity bias is huge in hiring. That's why recruitment um, can be very harmful um, if we don't check our biases. So I've talked to a lot of leadership teams that do recruitment, and um, they will actually say after work, like, oh, wow, we tend to hire people who look like the leadership team. And we see that, right, in, in our schools. And so that's affinity bias. Um, and then there's ageism, right? Um, you discriminate uh, based on someone's age. And so, you know, um, I, I see this a lot. Oh, well, that person's young. Um, and then that person looks young or that person does. And then make, making assumptions. That person doesn't have experience. On the flip side, oh, that person's too old. Um, yeah, I don't know if they can keep up with like, the millennials. So I've heard those comments uh, in recruitment. And so again, that's age, age ageism, right? Um, there's beauty bias, right? I think we, we see this in all areas. Um, we judge someone based on their appearance. If someone is more physically attractive, we tend to have uh, favoritism toward that person. Um, there's gender bias, right? Uh, you prefer one gender over the other. We see that in the classrooms. We see that in recruitment. Um, we see that all over in our society. Um, we, there's also anchor bias. Uh, so we rely on the first piece of information we receive about a person. And then we, we make decisions based on that. Right. Um, I do a lot of uh, work uh, thinking about recruitment just because I've been in leadership in the past few years. And I see that a lot. And honestly, I've had to catch myself. Like if I see something really amazing on someone's resume that I really like, I let that kind of, um, you know, color my perspective on, on the whole process. And, you know, I don't think that's fair because I don't do that for other candidates. Right. And so that's that's anchor bias. But also on the flip side, let's say you heard something or you read something that didn't resonate with you. Oh, I don't I don't like that. Then it colors the whole perspective again, right? So we have to be careful of these biases, right? And then I'll just I'll say one more. Again, there's many. There's status quo bias. We are going to prefer to stay to keep things the way they are. We see this in a lot of organizations, right? Why are we doing it? They say, well, it's been done this way for the past years, and we haven't had a problem. So why change? Why why change something that's not broken? And so that's status quo bias. So those are just a, a few of, of many. Uh, I'm smiling, not smiling, but like I'm shames, like awkward shame smiling because everything that you've said, I'm like, okay, that's my bias. Wait, that one too. <laughs> and this, oh wait, this is how I see it. I'm like, ah. So often biases uh, show up in, uh, as microaggressions. Mm -hmm. Would you define that and talk about that? Sure. Um, so unchecked implicit biases, um, they lead uh, to microaggressions. And um, basically microaggressions, um, I guess you could, you, microaggressions are repeated, um, they're subtle, um, they're oftentimes unintentional, they can be intentional, right? They're interactions and behaviors, um, and they basically communicate a bias towards historically marginalized groups of people. And so again, the emphasis is uh, most people who commit microaggressions, they're unaware of it. 
Um, and so, and they're unaware of how their behaviors impacted the other party. So let's just say an example. Um, this is something I, I heard all the time when I was in college, grad school. Um, that's so gay, right? And, and that was negative, all right? And how does that impact someone else in the room who identifies as gay, right? So, you know, I've actually tried to unpack this with a lot of groups of uh, folks in my life because that was just thrown around so easily. And, oh, I didn't mean it like that. I just meant, you know, that's gay. That, that, and then, so uh, what does that mean? It's a negative connotation. So what does that say about someone who actually identifies as gay? And people who um, don't identify as gay, they're the ones who are saying it, right? Because it doesn't impact them. And so how much harm can that one comment do to someone who identifies as gay? And that's just an example uh, of many um, of, of these microaggressions, right? Um, another one for my, my end, um, I was always assumed that I would excel at math because I'm Asian, right? <laughs> Um, and this, you know, I, I, I went through this a lot because I actually could have excelled at math, but I was so scared of failing because I remember um, uh, one of my teachers said to me, oh, you're, my sister was very bright. Um, she was like top of her class. So, you know, she went before me and she actually was very good at math. And um, so they kept comparing me to her. And then I remember the comment saying, oh, you know, you and your sister, you're from, you know, you're, you're from Korea. We actually, uh, I'm actually was born in the States, but that's another story, but you're from Korea. And so you must be good at math oh wow I'm so excited to see what you can do in my class and you know for me um, that was really that just put a lot of pressure on me I just didn't want that pressure because I didn't want to fail and so I actually made the intent intentional effort to not study in math so I my grades in math are terrible on purpose and that's unfortunate right I know that's unfortunate because I actually could have done really well and I had to go through so much work um, internally to get through this math block because I was just so scared of failing again that that actually um, you know worked against me because you know some people have said oh you know what Margaret that was great there was expectations for you that were high I'm like but that wasn't it was actually harmful and so that's again that was another bias that actually changed my math like trajectory um, I'm still upset about it so you know <laughs> I mean I'm still upset about it. So, um, so, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, microaggressions that happen on a daily basis. And again, when you have so many, it is so hard, right? It is so hard. And there are people, groups of people that maybe get a few microaggressions, but then there are groups of people that get them all the time. And so I think, you know, we have to think about those who get microaggressions all the time. What is it like for them? And what can we do in our position to make sure that doesn't happen? Right. Yeah, I think of microaggressions as there's a there's a boat, but it, there's a small little hole. Mm. Like yes, it can it can sink the that ship, but over time, if you have multiple little holes, that ship's gonna sink pretty fast. That's a great great analogy, and I hear this a lot. Um, you know, um, why why are you so emotional, or why, why are you making you're overreacting? It's not it was unintentional, but and that's the that's the point we're trying to make here. A lot of times they are unintentional, but intentions do not mean that um, in, the impact's going to be great. Just because you have a good intention, we have to think about the impact. And again, that's why it's so important for those um, who who may who may not be aware of their biases or, and, and that they're microaggressing, that they become aware. Again, this is why these conversations are very important. I'm gonna keep saying it over and over again. <laughs> they are important because, the, because imagine if one teacher says, okay, you really shouldn't consider math. Really, it just changes the path. Like I see a path changing. I see a path yes. reverting, either right or yeah. left. A kid is standing at the fork of a road and the teacher says something. 
And this, that then is a seed that plants, or that is a, the direction where they turn indifferently, right? And so just by that one action, that's why we have to be so careful about all these implicit biases. No, I, I appreciate what you're saying because it also makes me think about the power of our words. And you know, and we're, t- we're also talking about influence and positions of power. When we are an educator and we have the privilege of standing in front of these precious young minds, like we have so much power and influence, every word matters. And so we, we can say, you know, a comment about math or a comment about someone's appearance or a comment about someone's ability, and that will change the trajectory of their lives. We cannot, um, we can, I cannot stress enough how important our words and actions are and how much impact they may have on a child. And we may never know the impact of our words. That's why it's, it's so important that we make sure our words are affirming, uplifting, you know, they, they, they help people feel good about themselves because, you know, as an educator, when I was in the classroom, I, I just remember thinking like, I have had things said to me that made me hate myself, loathe myself. And, you know, growing up, like struggling with identity, uh, and I'm sure, you know, you've had similar experiences. It is so, it's such a painful place and lonely place to be when you're constantly self-loathing, right? And I don't want that for any, anybody especially students. And I certainly don't want to be the cause of that. And so I want to make sure that my words do the opposite. Like I do not want anyone to feel less of themselves because of something I said or did unconsciously, right? How that's terrible. And so again, we, our words can build someone up or bring someone down. And as educators, we want to make sure we're doing everything we can uh, to build someone up. And guess what? If we don't, we're going to make mistakes. It goes back to that. Do we have a feedback system? Do we have a system where we're able to, um, no, like when we when we do cause harm, and then we can correct it. Well, that'll be my next second to next question, uh, the feedback question. But um, I want to go back to the thing that you talked about with um, every word matters. Uh, mm-hmm. In particular, a position of power as teachers, um, we create our words are so powerful because we create the culture for that classroom. We create mm-hmm. the safe space, or we create a hostile feeling for students, and. Or we say, yes, we, as a teacher, I approve of this and I don't approve of that. Or I approve of you this way, but I don't approve of you that way, right? And so then students will say, oh, he's my anchor for what is right and what's wrong in the classroom. So I will adopt his values as well. And that creates a culture. Can you please talk to us about uh, more about the feedback process? That has come up like multiple times now. How can teachers create that feedback process for them to uh, uncover implicit biases? Yeah, so um, I think that's um, something that it's that's like a lifelong journey. Like I'm still trying to, um, you know, figure that out. Um, but but there are things that we can do. And so, but but again, it's it's one of this is a process that again takes a lot of internal reflection, and that's 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 going to be ongoing. But I would say the first thing, uh, just in general, it's for, uh, to address biases, microaggressions, to make sure that you are, um, you know. Uh, constantly thinking about these things. Um, take, taking an inventory is really helpful. Um, I know I, I do this regularly. So, um, you know, I always encourage um, people who attend my workshops um, to just take an inventory, just pause. Again, this is not, it's not to feel bad about yourself or good about yourself. It's just, you know, get that data. So look at your 
Netflix queue. Look at your podcast you're listening to, your books. Look at your friends. Who are you hanging out with? Where are you hanging out with, right? Um, what is in your ear? You know, the news you're reading, just everything, um, your music, right? And just take an inventory and think about, is it diverse? Because research shows the more diverse your friend groups are, the things you're listening to, things you're reading, the less likely you'll have biases, only because you have exposure, right? And so just take a look at that. Um, that that's a really good place to start. Um, you know, we always talk about critical self-reflection. Um, that is a process. It's actually a lot harder than it sounds um, to reflect. Um, I, I know for myself, I, I didn't grow up conditioned to just reflect, right? Even in schools, I wasn't like, I wasn't encouraged to really reflect. I was just kind of told what to do and I would just do it. And so um, this critical self-reflection piece is huge. It's asking yourselves these questions, right? Like, I think it's really helpful for, well, for me. What I did is I actually just asked myself, like, what are my biases? How do I get there? I just start with that. Um, it, it's like a puzzle. I try to figure it out. And having people to be your windows and mirrors. So if you have people who are very honest with you, um, so I have a group, affinity groups, I have several, and I actually ask them, like, are there, uh, is there anything that I've done or said to you that has caused harm? And they're actually very honest. Right. And so that takes a place of vulnerability, but um, that that's something that I value and I have groups like that. So setting up accountability groups are really important. Again, you need to, it has to be a trusting relationship where you feel brave enough to share. It has to be that space, a brave space for you. Um, so those are uh, um, some, some ways to start. Um, also, um, uh, it's really important to have exposure to counter stereotypes. And so um, I, I bring this up uh, because it happened last year. I had a, a kindergarten teacher. Um, she actually shaved her head and her, yeah. And um, she was donating her hair and uh, she, she decided to shave her head. And her kids were just like, what? That's, you know, you look like a boy. You look like a man. Like, why did you do that? So she had to actually, um, you know, explain, right? At a kindergarten level, which she did a wonderful job of. But, you know, it was very beautiful because as a result, I heard a student just tell me, like they came up to me, I was just in the room. Do you know that 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 women can also have shaved heads? You know, it, she's five, right? But what that teacher did was create a, a counter stereotype, right? Um, you know, I'm a woman, an Asian woman in leadership. That's a counter stereotype, right? Um, you know, you're a gay man um, teaching, you're a counter stereotype. Right, because of, of those counter stereotypes, our students will now think that's a norm, right? And so we need to be exposed to counter stereotypes as well. So you know, on the flip side, if if you are that that counter stereotype, um, and I say this with hesitation because it's not an easy it's not an easy place to be when you're alone, right? Like do you're the trailblazer trying to you know be, be the change and be the role model, but it is really important. Um, and so I'm hoping that if you are that trailblazer out there, you know, I hope. If you're feeling not alone, um, you're not alone. You know, we want to make sure you have community. There are so many communities out here now. We're supporting each other. So that's, again, that's really important. Um, and again, I always say take a stance of inquiry. Um, it is so important. I mean, as educators, right, that's what we want for our students. We constantly have to inquire about our thoughts and actions, right? That that all helps, asking questions, letting other people ask us questions, right? And, 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 and learning together about our discovering ourselves is, is so important. Um, and again, I, I think, again, for me, like, I think that's helped me the most is to engage in pe with people who are different. Like I will seek out people who are different, putting myself in positions where I may not be super comfortable, but I'm just gonna do it. Like, you know, it's important. Um, and, and again, it, it's it's different. It's not 
uh, I have to uh, clarify one thing because it's not, you know, you're not just going to go to a different group of people just for an experiment. That's not what I mean at all. I mean, genuinely seeking, um, you know, true, genuine relationships and experiences that are different, putting yourself out there. You know, again, it's a two way street. You're also contributing, but making sure that, you know, everything, the people around you are diverse and you are engaging in these authentic dialogues. Um, and so I think it's so important to do that because through these experiences, you will learn. And again, being comfortable, I think, is human. We all want to be comfortable. We all we don't want to, you know, take the boat, but that's not going to help us. Um, with our critical self-reflection and raising our self-awareness. So, you know, again, let's try to engage with those who are different from us and, and being comfortable, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's why dealing with implicit biases are so hard because it it makes us feel like, oh, I did this, but it's not, it's not about you as a bad person. It's about, oh, this action was unintentioned, but has these very real consequences for students. Right. I think, right. Um, I'll go back to that story of the teacher who shaved her head and mm -hmm. like the student said, do you know that boy, women can have shaved heads too? And like, I think I want to highlight that because if we want to teach kids um, and in our position of power, how to address implicit biases, we model that for students. I, so this summer I'm dog walking and I uh, go just for fun because I miss my dogs. And so my neighbor, I go over to my neighbor's house and pick up the dog. And then we talk to the neighbor for a little bit. And she has, she has a daughter. And when she came to the door, two, two daughters, she came to the door with her kids and uh, she had like all this makeup on. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. Who did it for you? I'm like, oh yeah, my daughters did it for me. And the daughter said, would you like to have makeup too? And I was like, sure, not a problem. Because boys can have makeup as well, right? And so I was sewing the suit of like, yes, men can wear makeup too, because I grew up thinking like this internalized homophobia and I was like, now I'm dealing with it, but I'm also teaching kids like, oh yes, men can wear makeup too. And so I am, I'm trying to make sure prevent these biases from happening um, at an early age when the opportunity shows up. So teachers out there, when you see the opportunities share as well, here's another example. So when I, so for SEL, I'll have my, the first thing I have my kids do on Mondays is turn mm -hmm. to the partner and ask each other what they did for the weekend. And then after that, I share what I do. And I always, before, before like when I first started teaching, I, I always would always say, my friend and I did this. But now I'm like, my boyfriend and I did this. And so we're showing kids, so we're taking that opportunity, not to show it in the face, because everyone has a weekend and you're sharing what you did this weekend, but I'm no longer hiding that. And so, so I'm showing kids like, oh, okay, you might have a bias, this, this bias might exist, but as representation happens, that bias uh, dissolves. Yeah, and I think you're highlighting uh, a few things we've talked about, that intentionality. You're being very intentional, intentional, intentional about making sure that you're highlighting, um, you know, these important things in your life to show students that it's okay, you know? And, and I think it also highlights as teachers, again, we, we are in a position of privilege and power, your words matter. And so for you to talk about your boyfriend, if there's a student who's feeling a little bit unsure about, you know, maybe sharing about their boyfriend, right? Like they're gonna do it now because their teacher has done it. And so it is so important for us to be intentional about doing that. So, you know, thanks for highlighting that. I think that all, that all helps. Uh, since you are a teacher in international school, why should international teachers worry about biases as well? Yeah, I think, you know, 
I think everyone needs to, you know, worry, worry about biases, right? Uh, it doesn't matter what school you're in. As a as a human being, especially as an educator, you would need to worry about biases because they exist. And they, again, we can unintentionally cause harm. But yeah, so I guess what, what I hear is what I said was that, you know, a lot of people come in thinking it's it's not going to have as many biases uh, because it's so international. Um, but in reality, um, I think a lot of um, teachers and students experience um you know, these biases and they're just surprised. And so I think, you know, if you do work at an international school, just, you know, going in, I think it, you know, I guess it goes back to any school. When you go into a school, I think you just have to learn the culture, uh, you know, it, it, not make the assumptions, just go in. And then, you know, if you, again, if you do um, experience biases yourself, I think that's something that um, I've um, been working with, with, with teachers of color, particularly, it's they experience microaggressions on a daily basis. And so I'm actually a part of a lot of affinity groups that we talk about this. Um, at the talks that you know you attended, at the end, we usually have a time we just talk. It is so um, surprising, but not surprising anymore. But in the beginning, it was really surprising to listen to how many teachers experience microaggressions. And again, I can only imagine all the more for the students. I, I, I work more with adults, right? But like um, teachers alone, um, it is really heartbreaking, actually. I have um, many teachers come in crying, um, you know, and then, you know, just, just pouring out their hearts in this space where they cherish because we don't have a space to go to, right? We don't have a space where people um, can understand our experiences. And so um, I think that's why it matters, right? Um, if, if we have lots of teachers in these spaces, how much more are there out there? And so I think, you know, I'm talking not only teachers, but leadership as well. It is so important to create spaces for your faculty where, um, you know, how are you doing that? How are we creating spaces for faculty where they can come as they are and they can share um, how they're feeling? And how are we addressing that? I think, again, that's that feedback loop. We need it at all levels, right? All levels of the school. Uh, again, that's why it matters. And I, again, I would just go back to, we need to get that feedback loop. So if you are you know, a teacher or a leader listening to this podcast, really going back to your teams and thinking about how you're going to get that feedback. And how do you know if your teachers and students feel safe coming to school? How do we know that, right? What's our metric? And so um, I think it, it matters because people are being harmed and we don't want that. I, I genuinely believe we don't want that for our community. <laughs> so yeah, this is why it matters. Well, for our penultimate question, you're, you are a, 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 an administrator of color. And so could you talk about your experience with that? And how do you, um, what was your experience and how do you move towards that? Yeah, I think, you know, when I first started, um, I, I was, desperately seeking people who looked like me and you know I had phenomenal colleagues so you know that that was like I was very blessed I had a phenomenal team um and that was wonderful um at the end of the day I didn't have anyone who looked like me and so I actually um um ALOC is a place where I, I, I go, yeah, it's Association um, International Educa Educators Leaders of Color. Um, that was a space where I, I went to to get my affinity group of other leaders of color. And um, that's been like life giving. Um, and so I think for me, um, representation mattered to me. And so if I didn't have that, I think I would feel really lonely. And so, um, you know, for me going through, um, it, it's different. Like, you know, when I had a experience, uh, my lens is always through a woman and a person of color. And so I know that's not the same for uh, others on my team. And so um, I just wanted to hear someone who had similar experiences. So through ALOC, I was able to find those experiences and I didn't feel as alone. Um, 
I, I can say I, I do stick out. So, you know, when I go to conferences or meetings, uh, I know people will actually, just because of my physical appearance, I do get a lot of questions. Um, you know, again, it, it was just something I had to prepare for. Um, even parents would mention, students would mention it. And, you know, people notice, right? And so that that is something that, um, you know, I, I was like, oh, okay, this is, this is it's pretty obvious. <laughs> um, you know, no, it would be more like, um, oh, I noticed this, like, kind of like what you're asking what's that like I remember a new faculty member came in and he actually like I did not know him he said you're the only person that looks like you I'm so curious to hear about your experiences right and I had a parents who would just share what's that like and so they, they were just curious and they genuinely wanted to know my experiences um also on the flip side um a lot of people have um sought me out for mentorship um not just in my school but in the ear coast region right the, the east asia re regional school council schools and also worldwide people have uh, because there's not many of us and you know it, I when I reflect on that it, it makes me really sad because there's not that many of us that I can be googled and searched like you know right like if someone's looking for an Asian um Asian American female leader there's not many of us so my name gets thrown out and you know, I remember um, there was one time, one year where many people asked for like mentorship, meaning they wanted regular feedback, they wanted regular meetings. And of course, my heart is to help. But you know, I have limited time. And I was just I remember I was just so frustrated. I'm like, you know, if we had more, you know, leaders that look like me, I wouldn't be in this position where I have to choose who I have who, who I have to mentor, right? Because all of them should have representation. And so I think, you know, those kind of experiences, I'm like, wow. And um one um one recent one last year, I had a, a student, she was a, a Korean, Korean American, and she couldn't find uh, representation in literature. So she decided to write her own book. So it was really cool. Um, so she was looking for a mentor. So again, I mentored her. It was phenomenal. But um, the, you know, again, she's like, I can't find anyone else. To mentor me except you you're the only person that, you know that I would I that in my in her life like that would you know that would be able to mentor her and so again it just it just it just reiterated the fact that there's not enough of us right we have to make sure that our leadership teams are diverse we have to make sure there's representation for all our students and it's going to be a lifelong process but I am committed uh to making that happen and so um yeah I mean there's I feel like Tan we could talk about this like yeah podcast part two <laughs> yes we could talk a lot and i just want to ask maybe to, to one final final ish question talk about parents like when so you were at a uh, an international school in korea and the parents are used to seeing white figures but also mostly white males what do you do when you do it when you, implicit bias comes from parents mm. That is a, yeah, no, I'm glad you asked that because I think when that happens, I know for myself, like um, I, I will, I am, I am trained and I think about this a lot. So I will actually address it in, in a way that I feel is appropriate for that time. And, you know, depending on who the person is, so I, I actually will address it. I, I will actually ask, Hey, can, can you say more about um, the comment you made? Um, and then um, we, t we start from there. Um, but I do understand that takes um, a lot of bravery and it takes a lot of skill um, to do it well, to have these hard conversations. And so I wouldn't, you know, necessarily expect teachers to just be able to do that uh, or, or even administrators, because what I realize is um, different people have different comfort levels and a lot of folks are not skilled or not, not 
skilled, but not trained to have these conversations. And so it, that actually highlights, um, we need training around this, right? How to handle, uh, you know, a microaggression that comes away, especially if it is a parent. And, you know, I always try and um, run under the assumption that Again, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna make the assumption that it wasn't intentional. Um, sometimes they are, and that's a whole different. That's another that's another conversation. But it, it let's run under the assumption that it was unintentional. How do we do that? I genuinely feel that parents also would like to learn. They they don't want to be unkind. And so you know, I, I remember having a conversation about um, a microaggression, and um, you know, it was it went back to I actually put it back to okay you know, your child, what do we want for that child? We wouldn't want our ch our children to be, you know, causing this kind of harm with comments. And so this is how I experienced this comment. Um, and thankfully for me, um, this parent, I knew fairly well. And again, because I knew this parent well, I was more bold. If it was someone I did not know, it would have been a different approach. And we had to have this discussion. It was, it was, it, considered a, a difficult conversation, but it, the the um, fruit was so big because now that parent left like, oh my goodness, thank you for letting me know. I did not know. And thank you for, now I can be a better parent, right? That was powerful. But again, that was under circumstances where I calculated like that's, it's safe for me. It, it's going to be okay. Cause I know this person, if I did not have that relationship again, it, it would take it would be a different approach. And so I think um, it is important to address, but again, I, I have to emphasize, like I've talked to so many educators, they don't feel comfortable addressing it, especially with parents, right? And so again, this, you know, you give me a good idea, Tan, maybe that should be, <laughs> should be a course that I should, yeah, we should all work on it together. But um, I do think we have to talk about this. And in schools, we have to talk about it. Like, well, why can't this be a part of our orientation? How do we address biases, not only ourselves with parents? Why can't we have courses not only for educators, but for parents as well, right? And so, yeah, I mean, I think, again, it just goes to the show that we just need more training around that. Because I always will, because parents are all partners. Mm -hmm. If we're having one message, but the parents like, don't, don't listen to that teacher, we have to be like, we have to communicate why we need you as partners. Like, hey, why do you feel like you, you, I can't, we can't communicate this with your, yeah. with your students, right? And so that's an opportunity there as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Our last question. Um, yes. This is a metaphor. So it's mm -hmm. called traffic light teaching. Okay. What would you ask teachers to, to stop red light uh, in terms of um, implicit bias? Uh, yellow light is continue doing mm -hmm. and green light is start doing. So stop, continue, start. Okay. These are very quick, brief answers. Okay, sure. I would ask educators uh, to stop doubting themselves. I think a lot of times, including myself included, um, we tend to um, sell ourselves short. I, I think uh, just the nature of our job, a lot of um, folks uh, that I've talked to in the education field never feel good enough, right? There's that imposter syndrome that we had talked about briefly in the past. Um, so, you know, stop doubting yourselves. You can do it. You can make change. You are valuable and you are so precious, um, not, not only in the education world, but just for being you. And so stop doubting yourself. You are amazing. You're incredible. You, you have to have those words of affirmation every day. You have to tell yourself that. You have to surround yourself with people who tell you you are enough, just as you are. Um, what was yellow again? Could you remind me? Keep doing. Oh, keep doing. Okay. Okay. So I would say um, if, if we're talking about, sorry, I, I might have went a little broader, but if we're talking about implicit biases, um, I would say keep, um, you know, keep 
yourself in community. I think that's really important. You need a community of educators um, who, who can build you up, but also um, challenge your um, thinking. So with implicit bias, but also your practices. So keep, uh, keep in community where you have groups of people to be your mirrors and windows, right? They will affirm you when, when, when you need affirming, but they'll also let you know where the areas of growth are, right? You need that community to continue to be in community together, go through the ups and downs, ebbs and flows of this wonderful thing called teaching together. And so again, keep uh, going in community. And green is... Um, I would say, um, again, that critical self-reflection piece, uh, again, this is for those who have not really thought about intentionally carving out time for critical self-reflection. Um, I would encourage everyone to start doing that. So what I mean by that is whether it's journaling, whether it's just you know meditation time, but really being intentional about protecting that time to just think doing that internal work, um, whether it's, again, just asking yourself questions, I know many people go to therapists. I think that's wonderful, right? To do that internal work. Some people um, go to the beach or some people go take a walk, do exercise, whatever that time is for you to critically self-reflect on what you're thinking, right? How your thoughts and in um, actions impact yourself and others. I think that's really important. So I would say start doing that. And um, yeah, hopefully as a community of educators, if we all do that, I, I do believe you know, there's going to be a really good fruit from that. So, well, Margaret Park, I know that you have left leadership role, and because you wanted to to move into consulting, and I'm so happy that you have moved into consulting because you, you will move the needle for so many schools. You already have moved the needle for your school, but now you're doing it at a wider, wider perspective. I hope. I know. Actually, there are courses, and there's a book out of you. Thank you so much, Tan. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be on this podcast. And um, for anyone who's listening, um, you know, again, I just want to highlight what Tan's doing because, um, you know, when when you first asked me to join, I kind of did a little research and I was like, wow, you could be doing so many other things with your time, but you're taking the time to create space um, to, to have these important dialogues. And I think, you know, that was so inspiring for me. And I think all of us out there too, with listeners, all of us have a space for you it was a podcast for me it's through teaching right um, I think all of us have spaces so let's all together use our spaces to make change we can do this together thank you Tan. Um, I am so inspired thank you Margaret before we recap this episode I have a favor and an invitation my favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now, onto our recap. Schools are places designed for students to be successful and to grow. Yet, when we have biases, marginalized students experience lower expectations than others. I think that examining our biases are really uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable for me as well. However, who is the most uncomfortable? That's right, our students. 
That's why we have to lean into the difficult work of looking into the mirror, realizing that we are not bad people for having biases, and taking the necessary steps to change our biases. I hope you can come along with me on this never-ending journey of being an advocate of diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play traffic light teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. You're beautiful.